David, y'all can be seated. So thankful you're here today. I hope you've been reading along as Shane encouraged our little ones earlier in the service during the kids' demo. Hope you've been getting into chapter one of the story this last week and are planning on continuing to read this next week as we get into the story this coming week of Genesis, uh, I guess chapter 12, through the rest of the chapter, or through the rest of the book. So it's going to be exciting. So jump in there, be reading, it's going to be great. And uh, just so glad that you're here this morning. Our teams, I was trying to get our teams to break the record. They've only got eight on in seven seats down here this morning. I was trying to get the middle school girls to make it ten, but they wouldn't do it this morning. So next week, kids, we try to squeeze ten of you on that front row. So it'll make look like it'll make look like I'm a better preacher. So I appreciate that. <laughs> anyway. Well, hey, it was 1980 that Rosie Ruiz, marathon runner in the Boston Marathon, crossed the finish line incredibly in first place. 1980. She was not only the ladies champion of the year, but she also broke the overall record for ladies ever in the Boston Marathon. Now this was an incredible feat, but what was even more incredible for Rosie Ruiz was that no one had ever heard of her. In the marathon world, you kind of go progress, go and progress and get better and better. But she crossed the line. No one had ever heard of her. Things got a little bit more strange. It was right after the race, she got interviewed on TV and she didn't seem flummoxed. She didn't seem bamboozled. She didn't seem like most marathon runners would be. Tired and exhausted. And then when she was asked, how many marathons have you run? We've never heard of you. She said, I've only run two. And then she was asked, who's your coach? And she said, I only train myself. Now, I know little about marathon running, and I don't want to know anything about marathon running as a personal endeavor. But I do know that you need to have a coach. So this was odd. It was a little suspicious. Rosie Ruiz was crowned the champion that day, but just a few days later, her whole story and her whole victory began to unravel. A freelance photographer in Boston was going through his photos from the day at the marathon, and as he developed them, he saw a picture from the day of the race of a woman who looked just like Rosie Ruiz. She had on the yellow shirt, the racing bib, the white shorts. Although... In this picture, she wasn't on the course. It was a picture he took as he was going towards the finish line and he was on the Boston subway. And he accidentally snapped a picture of somebody and there was Rosie Ruiz taking a little ride during the race as well. What Rosie Ruiz had done is she started the race at the right starting line, but after 10 miles, she got tired and she jumped on the subway. She took a ride to the end of the race, thinking she would somehow, she, her goal was to try to finish in the top 100 by cheating a little bit, but she mistimed her thinking and mistimed everything, and she ended up getting off the subway and realizing, I'm in first place, <laughs> and crossing the line. She had started the race back, but she finished it wrong. So in 1999, two brothers by the name of Sergio and Arnold, and I need to get this name right, Mozambique, were participants in a huge marathon as well in the country of South Africa. They didn't start out knowing they weren't going to cheat. They started out knowing they were going to cheat with the plans that they had. 
Sergio and Arnold look a lot alike. They're not identical twins. They're separated by a year or two, but they had a plan. Sergio started the race at the right starting line, took off, and then at mile 13, snuck off the course and met his brother in a bathroom where he gave him his race bed. His brother Arnold was already wearing the exact same tank top, shorts, shoes, and hat. Arnold finished the race somewhere in the top 10, and Sergio and Arnold got away with, for a time, a pretty good amount of prize money by coming in the top 10 at this big South African Marathon. But, just in the Rez is as in the Rosie Ruiz story, a photographer later noticed, I don't know if you picked up on it, as they looked at the photographs from the race, all of a sudden they noticed that Sergio, who was supposedly the winner because it was his bib, his watch changed arms somewhere between the race, start, and finish. Sergio and Arnold would have gotten away with it, but they forgot to change the watch back to the last Now, if you're a parent or ever been parented, you've probably said the following line, right? Cheaters never win, which is certainly true with Rosie Ruiz and the Montsenig brothers. But we also know that that's not only something that is true, but there's another truth that's even deeper than that. When it comes to racing, how you begin the race and how you run the race determines how you finish. But more so when it comes to life. And when we get into the story of God and learning for God's story to be our story, this is our deep truth for today. As we start Genesis 1, at the starting line of the scripture, the starting line of God's story, where and how you begin the story will determine the story you live and tell. Let's hold on to that. Where and how you begin, the way we see the story starting will determine how we tell the story and then, of course, most importantly, how we live the story. Each and every one of us are living out of a story. It's the deeper stories that we tell ourselves. The deep stories we believe about our world and about others and about ourselves, they inform how we think, how we live, how we interact with others. Buying into, for example, the falsehood that everybody else is stupid and you are not will create in you, living that story will create in you a certain kind of life. You will become condescending. You will become hateful. While doing the opposite and living by a deeper story of people are in process will create in you grace. Living by a story that the world is full of malice and evil and everybody must be evil will make you fearful and closed off. But by living by a different story of one of abundance, it creates a new philosophy. Where and how you begin the story determines the story you tell. Or in short, getting the story right makes all the difference. Today, we're going to examine the starting line. We're going to use that analogy of what's at the starting line. What's engraved in the brickwork of God's starting line of Scripture? What is there that 
determines the way we should read, experience, know, and live out the rest of the race. Let's pray together and we'll jump into this in Genesis chapter 1. Lord God, just guide us as we open up these scriptures. Guide us, teach us. God, to have do some work in us today. Help us to examine the story we believe, the deep stories that we've bought into, and the falsehoods and the false narratives that we may have adopted as our own. And help us to hear with fresh ears and to see with fresh eyes today what the story really is about. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, of course, God's story opens like this, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. The tohu vovohu, the chaos, empty chaos was there. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. Now I want us to notice just three quick things this morning of the beginning of this story. The starting line of the story is goodness. What begins creation, seven times God declares, what I'm making is good, it's tov. Hebrew word there, in 1, 4, and in 10, and 12, 18, 21, 25, and in 31, God declares, it's very good. It's tov meod. It's very much good. It's good. This is engraved on the starting line of Scripture. And good means much more than just pleasing or desirable. Desirable. Tov in Hebrew, this word for good, is bursting with meaning. It's this tiny little word, three little letters, that means engaged in process. Good in God's creation means something is capable of or destined for betterness. Good is about something having potential beyond its current state. That dessert looks good, but it has potential to be mm, when I taste it, even better, right? Right? We know what that means. That's the Hebrew word. It's got potential. And at the starting line of Scripture is that word. There is creation bursting with potential. The story continues, and you hear in verse 22, and in other places, as God creates and it says God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Blessed is there at the starting line along with good. And blessed shows up three times. Seven and three. Both, word, both numbers meaning complete. Blessed is this word it shows up in this opening poem of Scripture where God blesses creatures and then mankind and then He blesses the day, the Sabbath. But blessed is this word in Hebrew that's pronounced, you guys can say it with me, barakah. Barakah, right? It's fun to say, right? Barakah. And this word doesn't mean 
And maybe this word above all others that we'll look at today probably have fallen away from its original meaning in our language. It doesn't mean what we mean by blessed. Getting what you want is a blessing. Enjoying wealth in America is blessing. Don't think I got a good parking spot. Creation must be blessed. <laughs> right? Or I got a raise today. Creation must be blessed. That's not the idea. In this story, Barakah is a word meaning creation has creative ability. To be blessed by God means the, creature, the creatures of creation are endowed with ability to take creation to another level. Animals and birds and sea creatures, they're able to multiply and reproduce. So God blesses them. He blesses humans because He's able to partner with them and move creation to a next level. And He blesses the seventh day of the Sabbath because on a day of rest, you are blessed to go and bless others. See, Barakah is this idea of things are growing and things have potential. This is why you can say to your brother or your sister or your church family or your neighbor, hey, you had a bad day. Tomorrow can get better. Why? Today can only be improved upon tomorrow because creation has potential. It is blessed. So blessing, Barakah, is graffiti on this starting line. And blessing moves from those who are blessed so they can move outward to bless others. And then in verse 26, we see another word on the starting line of creation. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. When I read that, I always want to go, but God, when I fish, I don't rule. I never catch anything. Right? And my kids, we no longer do go fishing on vacation. They're like, we will never, they will not go because we've never caught anything. Right? But we're going to get into that. But God blesses humans and He says, rule over these things. And then the Scripture says in verse 27, so God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. He created them. Now we could deal with all kinds of words in this passage, but I want to just lean, lean into that word that's italicized there. The word rule. Because God not only creates a world of goodness and blessing, but He also creates a world where humans have this extra blessing in which they are made to rule over creation. Your translation may say subdue, and this word in Hebrew is radah, can mean a whole lot of things. It's got a whole lot of meanings behind it. It can mean govern, it can mean to rule over but I believe that context here dictates that what it means is to steward, to partner. To rule here is God is saying, I want you to partner with me, the Creator, in the good care of creation. Now, where and how you begin the story will determine what story you tell. And live. And God's story begins 
in Genesis 1 and 2 with goodness, with blessing, and with stewardship or partnership. Stewardship and partnership with God. Meaning, let us connect with the way that God is, who He is, in order to rule creation along with Him, like Him, in His image. Oh, and as a side note, I think it's important to remember this. Not only is it true that where and how you begin the story will determine what story you live and tell, but by the way, the story ends there too. Where Genesis 1 and 2 begins, Revelation, well, we'll do it this way. Genesis 1 and 2 begins with goodness and blessing and partnership. Revelation 21 and 22 ends there as well. The in-between is a sin problem, but the first of the Bible and the ending of the Bible mirrors one another to be about goodness and reign, what's Revelation saying about the saints? They will reign with God forever and ever. What else is in heaven? There's a garden, right? And it's good. And there's a tree there whose leaves can heal nations, right? What the story starts with, it also ends with everything being back in its good and proper place. So it's also true to say where you begin the story will determine how your story ends. So what I want to talk about though is this. I think all of us want to get to a good end of a good story. Not just when we're reading scripture, but when it comes to our lives, we all have a desire that our story ends well. But the problem comes because we have often let the Bible not begin where it actually begins. We have moved the starting line sometimes. Instead of starting at Genesis 1 and 2, what we've often done is we've jumped right into Genesis 3. And then we tell stories to people about Jesus and about God as if the, as if the whole thing starts with sin. And it doesn't. Have you ever wondered what the Bible would look like if there was no sin? It'd be a pamphlet. It'd be a flyer. It'd be Genesis 1 and 2 on the front. Revelation 21 and 22 on the back. Right? Sin is a problem in the Bible. Sin is a major character in the story of God. It's a big time presence. It shows up. But sin is in the story because of our rebellion. And because of our disruption against God's good and ordered creation. What he originally wants. Sin, if you want a good definition of what sin is, it's us saying to God, oh by the way God, you're in my seat. That's what sin is. It's us saying to God, you are in my seat. And trying to force him out of his place. I'm not trying to diminish sin. But I want you to remember that Genesis 3, when sin is introduced, is not the starting line of the Bible. And Genesis 3 is not at the end of the Bible either. If you take sin out of the Bible, there's a glorious start and there's a glorious finish, which the finish is just a new beginning. Again, I'm not trying to diminish this. Sin is serious. And it's important and it's a big part of the story. But sin is not the main character. And often as a church, we have tried to make sin the main character. So what happens to us? 
when we begin the story at the wrong starting point? What happens when we get on the subway instead of running the race? What happens when we start in Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1 and 2? Let me give you some examples to bring this together if you're tracking. So we start in Genesis 3, the story becomes about this. You start the story in Genesis 3, the story is all about removal of sin. It's a problem we need to get rid of. But if you start the story in Genesis 1, the story is about restoration. About what God has originally in mind. If you start the story in Genesis chapter 3, you'll tell a story of Christianity that's always about what you are not. You don't add up, you can't do this, you're awful, you're horrible, Calvinist, or tulip, total depravity of the human self, all that stuff. But that's not the starting line. The starting line is what you are. What humans were made originally to be, to join with God, to keep themselves under the rule of God. And the story is about what you are. You're good. If we start in Genesis 3, this is where we get escapism in the Bible. The goal is then escape, because if we start Genesis 3, what's the earth? It's bad. It's horrible. We've got to get out of here. We'll meet together in the sweet by and by. Get off this earth. But you read Revelation 21 and 22, Genesis 1 and 2, start in the right place. The goal is not escape, the goal is redemption. God is creating a new heavens and a new earth where all the former self and the former way of things, death, is no more. Amen, church? That's the goal. It's not escape. The goal is redemption. All things new. And then, of course, maybe a little more close to home, less theological. If we start in Genesis 3, you'll always know. I'm not good enough. I can't do that. We even make excuses. I'll always be this. But if we start in Genesis 1, what do we do? We live out of identity. You see the difference. When we move the starting line to Genesis 3 and we get the starting line all wrong, we end up in all the wrong places. Sometimes even telling the world stories that go against the will of God. But most of all, what we do when we move the starting line to the wrong place is we hardly make the Christian life a life worth living. Because if the goal is just escape, then what do I care about my neighbor? Right? If the goal is just removal of sin and not restoration, then all I have to do is get saved and then I don't really have to change anything. Right? I got saved, I'm still a jerk. Deal with it, people. Right? We love salvation, but we forget transformation, right? You see the issue with the moving of the starting line. When we move the starting line, the Christian life is hardly a life worth living. The Christian life is then minimized to an event, a moment, a building, one small little moment in my life. This last week I was hanging out with uh, Jose Ivan Robledo.com. who <laughs> grew up in our youth group and uh, is now this on fire follower of Jesus. And uh, when he's in town, 
He comes up here and bothers me, and I love it. <laughs> I love it. Because he's just on fire for Jesus. And we went, we were, we went around and we were taking cookies to different places in town, and then we were praying for businesses together, and, and he yelled out the door at somebody that he thought was Mr. Ramp from one of the subs at the school all the time, and he said, Mr. Ramp, Jesus loves you. And I go, dude, that's not Mr. Ramp. <laughs> so he goes, Well, I guess I guess knows that Jesus loves him now. I'm like, all right. But as we were getting out of, uh, off that trip, going around town delivering cookies, we got out of the, of the truck, and he said something to me that I'd never heard. We were talking about just living the Christian life and being passionate about Jesus, and he said, you know what a lot of people do is, he said, they make death their savior. And I said, what does that mean, Ivan? I'd never heard anything like that before. And he said, well, think about it. And this is like I'm putting on my learning shoes, right? Like I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, I want to hear from a 20-year-old on fire for Jesus college-age kid. I want to know what you mean by that. And he said, he said, John 17, 3. He said, Jesus says in John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that you know the Father and Jesus Christ, the one he sent. That's John 17, 3. And he said, what Christians do is we often don't live the Christian life, and so we're just waiting to be saved when we die. So he said, we've got to tell Christians, don't make death your Savior. Live for Jesus now. And I was like, dude, Jesus loves you. <laughs> so right. That's what happens when we move the starting line. When we move it to Genesis 3 and it becomes all about sin instead of God's original intent, we can do what we want, just hoping that death gets us out of here, that death becomes our Savior, instead of Jesus being our Savior now and we live it for Him right here, right now. Where and how you begin the story will determine the story you live and tell. Here's a little secret in Scripture. Give a little secret away in Scripture. That those people that we look at in Scripture and go, man, I want to be like David when he faces Goliath, right? I want to have a faith of Abram or Abraham when, he, when God says, take your one and only son and go to the place I'm going to show you and sacrifice him there that, that Guy and Shane just talked about. I want to have faith like that. And I just want to go, okay, Lord. I want to have a faith like Peter who says, Lord, if it's you, I'll get out of this boat and I'll walk on water. But the little secret in Scripture, guys, is this. Is what they know that we often miss is they know the starting line. And so because they know the starting line, they can trust the story. Abram trusts the story. He leaves home to follow God. Do you know that Abraham is not a Jew? <laughs> he, leaves, he leaves home to follow God and has no idea who God is. You'll read it this next week. He's a pagan. He's living in what will be Babylon. Hint, hint, to where the story is going later. But he follows because he trusts. Somehow he knows that God is good. And that God is enough. David defeats Goliath as a young man. Calls out, trash talks this giant in the name of the Lord. Because he knows the starting line. He trusts the story. Ruth a young Moabitess 
somehow knows to trust that Boaz, an Israelite, will be compassionate to her because she trusts the story. And on and on it goes. And we get to live that story. Trust the story. In the Lord of the Rings, I'm going to nerd out for just a minute. Y'all ready? <laughs> I'm going to nerd out. In the Lord of the Rings, there is a great line about story. It's a great interaction between Sam, Samwise Gamgee, and Frodo Baggins. And where Frodo is carrying the weight of the ring, the one ring, which in Tolkien's world represents the curse, sin. And he's worn out with it. And Frodo says to his best friend Sam, he says, I can't do this, Sam. He's ready to give up. And Sam says, I know, Mr. Frodo, it's all wrong. By all rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in those great stories, Mr. Frodo's, the ones that really mattered, the ones full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't know, or you didn't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was supposed to be when so much bad has happened? But in the end, in those stories, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clear. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I do know folks in those stories had a lot of chances to turn back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And what were they holding on to, Sam? And Sam says they were holding on to that there is something good in this world, Mr. Frodo. And it's worth fighting for. That's our story. We live in a fallen world. And it can sometimes feel like I can't trust the story because there's so much darkness and shadow around me. But when we get our starting line right, when we begin with where the story actually begins, we get to see that the world that God has made, the story is full of goodness and blessing and partnership. It's not that God wants to use you, it's that God wants to be with you and you can trust that because He wants to be with you, He will never leave you or forsake you. And that church is good news. I confess to you this morning, I do not trust the story. I often make the story about the finish line. I often make the story about butts and seats and, and things that are happening and people showing up for things that I've planned. But guess what? That is not trusting the story. That's trusting me. Trusting the story means that no matter how things turn out, I'm going to trust that God's going to make it turn out His way. And I can have faith that He is enough. And that's what we trust in, right? Man, what a start to this story. If you're struggling this morning because you've let your story kind of begin in Genesis 3, 
be reminded this morning that there is a better way. Let's get our story right. Let's jump back on the starting line and remember that it begins where it ends. With God ruling and reigning and having victory. If you need anything this morning, if you need to get involved in this story, we're here for you. If you need to talk about getting to know God in a deeper way, we're here for you. If you want to start your life in the story, the starting line, it begins with baptism. It begins with us saying, I'm giving up my story for God's story. That's what baptism is. It's a declaration. Whatever you need, we're here for you this morning. Let's stand. In the holy God Watch the waters walk before us now. Come and see what He has done for us.